So, Jay, I've been thinking, we're pretty much in the 90s by now, aren't we? They didn't really start until 1991, but yeah, we're getting there. Time to start bracing for the decade's worst continuity vortex. Oh man, Cable does show up pretty soon, doesn't he? Cable? I was thinking of Gambit. Gambit? Dude, he time travels almost as much as the Summers, which he actually almost turned out to be, so there's that too. And I guess there's the weird future Bishop connection. And the sinister stuff, and the externals, and the Teeves Guild, and the new son. New son? Yeah, he's the guy Gambit worked for for a while. Who was he? Oh, a version of Gambit from Earth-9921. What do you want with 616 Gambit? Well, New Sun had accidentally wiped out all of the life on his Earth. And he wanted to move to this one. Well, he wanted to save it from its Gambit. Sounds reasonable. By moving everyone on Earth to a new planet exactly 180 degrees away on Earth's orbit. What?! Jay Rachel Edden. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 117 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. So we are back. That is absolutely true. Although to be to be entirely fair, I am really just here for Namor. That's entirely reasonable, but uh feeling better? I mean, given the promise of the Prince of Abslantis dangled before me like a slightly cantankerous carrot. How could I not be? You heard it here first, listeners. If you ever have any sort of ailment whatsoever, Namor is there for you. Or at least the promise of him. Or at least he'll glare at you and say something really, really sassy. <laughs> and thus you are healed. It's like faith healing, but, you know, fishier and absier. Sass healing. It's a thing. Sass healing. Excellent. Anyway, so yeah, we are going to be talking about some new mutants today. Uh, we talked last episode about what the X-Men were up to after Inferno, and now it's time to do the same for the New Mutants. And the New Mutants are going to be, as of now, intersecting really extensively with another X-Title, which we're actually going to be covering next episode, but we're going to see a lot of bleed through between those in the immediate future. Yeah, although less than I would like. I mean, the X-Factor New Mutants overlap is so cool, and then the New Mutants go off to Asgard for a long time, and then Cable shows up, and I don't know, I wish we'd gotten to see more of this. I wish this era had expanded. So the New Mutants themselves are kind of in a transitional phase right now. Who's still on the team? So right now, we actually have four of the original five. We have Cannonball, Mirage, Sunspot, and Wolfsbane. We also have the controversial character Gossamer, the alien lady from another planet with sort of pheromone emotional manipulation powers that she can't fully control. At least for the time being. And we also have Ilyana Rasputin, sort of, because as you may recall from Inferno, at the climax of the New Mutants part of that story, she was de-aged into a little girl, basically at the point right before she got sucked into limbo in the first place from Octopusheim. Her relationship to the New Mutants right now is roughly the same as her relationship to the X-Men was when she first came to stay with them from Russia, but much sadder. It's actually really depressing every time you see her. I mean, she's a cute, adorable little girl, but then you remember all of the context and all of the tragedy, and then you are sad. Yeah, basically. Mm -hmm. Except when she's drawn by John Byrne, and she's just really unsettling. Well, I suppose there's that, too. So, yeah, the New Mutants, they won-ish Inferno, um, like we said, by sacrificing Ilyana's last decade or so. Well, Ilyana choosing to sacrifice her last decade or so, the New Mutants didn't, like, just throw her to Sim or something. Right, that would have been a total dick move. And the New Mutants, most importantly in Inferno, aside from the magic part, met the X-Terminators, the teenage wards of X-Factor. So who are these guys? Those are Rusty Collins, also goes by the codename of Firefist, which no, is mentioned- No, he doesn't. It was mentioned once, at least once. Yeah, but it's not like, he doesn't introduce himself that way. I mean, I wouldn't. Thank God. That's a terrible name. It really is. Hey, how's it going? I'm Firefist. Hey, where are you going? That's a cool name. It's cool, right? My redhead thing is cool also, right? Aw, oh, damn. I'm going back to the Navy. Or maybe jail. 
So anyway. <laughs> so anyway, uh, yes, there's Rusty, there's Skids, Boom Boom, Richter, Artie, Leech, and Taki. And uh, they were in the X-Terminators miniseries together, and some of them are going to stay on along with New Mutants to join the team. What all of these kids are doing right now is clean up in the wake of Inferno. New Mutant 74 opens with cannonball skids and Rusty flying through Manhattan, getting attacked by a trash can and a few lingering possessed objects and sort of casually fighting their way past. I do really like the idea of, like, the dying embers of Inferno just being weirdly cartoonishly possessed tiny objects, you know, lampposts, trash cans, newspaper scraps, whatever. You just have to, like, hit him with a broom. And that's the thing, like, the way it's working, these demonically possessed items are so weak that Richter's able to, for instance, dispossess, wait, like, like the Le Guin book? Or is it an Adwood book? I, I confused them that one time, and now I'm paranoid. I'm pretty sure it's Le Guin. Anyway. I'm just gonna let you dig this one deeper and deeper. They're both awesome authors, but they are somewhat similar and I confuse them. Point being, Richter's able to unpossess the trash can just by sending a little bit of vibration earthquake stuff at it. So, you know, you can get the demonicness out of stuff pretty easily at this point. Now, fighting the demons is the easy part. Meanwhile, Boom Boom, Richter, and Wolfsbane are stuck dealing with a whole, whole bunch of babies. Okay, so babies are very confusing to me. I don't understand how they work or where they come from or what they want from us. But I really do enjoy the little bits we get as all the teenagers are trying to deal with the babies, like passing a wet one around, just not well, wanting to deal with it. it's passing a group of three of them around and then informing whoever's just taken them that the middle one is wet or the middle one needs to be changed. It's actually some pretty good comedy, and Brett Blevins' art sells the facial expressions really well. Yeah, man, I am much, much more inclined to be charitable to post-Inferno Brett Blevins, and I don't know if it's just lingering good feelings from Inferno, which I realize is one of the odder phrases that I've ever, <laughs> ever spoken, but or if it's that something has just really clicked in terms of his representations of the characters. But yeah, I am liking him now a lot more than I did before. Me too. And it's also a lot of fun to see him draw both the Exterminators and the New Mutants. Like, seeing this ensemble, I don't know what it is, but they just work well together on page. Yeah, and Blevins' Exterminators, I mean, Boom Boom, for instance, is a character who could have been custom written for his art style. I would agree, yeah. And I mean, you know, her dialogue remains wonderful because, of course, Louise Simonson had been writing both groups of teenagers, both on X-Factor and the New Mutants. This is the worst, the absolute worst. We're stuck here with 13 screaming brats and a punch-drunk egghead. Nothing personal, Taki? You beat Nasty and all, but I see why your teammates were so gung-ho to be the ones to engage in that rescue mission. Thanks, Boom Boom. I love you, too. This is a sort of milder Taki we're seeing here, because I think the previous Taki probably would have built some horrible machine and attacked Boom Boom with it right after this. To be fair, Taki has had a really long day. He has, that's true. He uh, had to program a big computer for Nastier and saw a lot of people get killed and almost died himself. It was bad times. Yeah, he also had to basically bluff a bunch of demons for like eight hours. He was very good at that. He's a rad kid. And so uh, it's not too long before the rest of the mutants show up. And interestingly enough, the ones that show up are Mirage, Sunspot, Warlock, and Gossamer. This is the same team of new mutants who had been running around in all the tie-ins. So they were in Cloak and Dagger, for instance. They were in Power Pack as well. And clearly a lot of care was taken at this point to make sure that their chronology made sense. That They went from point A to point B to point C back to point A. Speaking of locked days, geez. Which is also where we get our first hint of what the general news about Inferno is what most people think are going on. What we find out is that the radio is reporting something called Goblin Night as a mass hallucination. Do you think they got the name from that one issue of Excalibur that had that as the issue title? No. Oh. 
I'm pretty sure the Excalibur comics don't canonically exist on Earth 616. I know there are Fantastic Four comics, but... Yeah, the latest issue of Silver Surfer actually had a kid show the Surfer his Fantastic Four collection. Yeah, I'm not sure if there are any other superhero teams who at least canonically had their own comics, um, but I know that one at least was official. Excalibur, I believe, was not. I suppose, and more's the pity. At least not in this timeline. I I assume that there must have been at least one where it was, probably more than one, given that it's Excalibur. (laughs) Yup. And that's not the only thing that's on the news. And we actually, by the way, will hear more about this mass hallucination explanation in an X-Factor annual we'll be covering soon. Oh, man. Say that four times fast. That, 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 that. Humph. Humph. Humph, humph, humph. The other thing on the news is the disappearance. Hoster? Uh, no, I'm not doing that. Or Beetlejuice. The other thing on the news is the disappearance of Lila Cheney, the intergalactic rock star and also planet thief, because she sacrificed herself to get rid of the bad guys in the Gossamer arc that involved Spider it was bad times. Well, she appeared to have done so, as we pointed out when we covered that, and as Rain points out now, Lila can only port to places where she's been, so either she can survive on the sun into which she ported Gossamer's, you know, countrymen, or she actually went elsewhere. I'm gonna go with part two, because I know there's such thing as a secondary mutation, but being able to live inside the sun seems a little much. I mean, she's Lila, she's great. It's probably a fan. Yeah, the sun itself, that's probably I assume, true. I assume that there are celestial entities who are Lila Cheney fans. No, she's going to come back way later and hit on Carol Danvers. It'll be terrific. <laughs> yes. Now, Gossamer feels really guilty about this, about really everything she's done since she showed up. As well she should. The male characters, of course, are still very sympathetic toward her because that's how her power works. Less sympathetic toward than smitten with. So, I mean, Sunspot, for instance, as she's being all self-pitying, just hugs her and says, You want to be as good as you are beautiful. Blech. By the way, gentlemen listening to this or anyone who likes the ladies, this is not a good pickup line. Uh, don't don't use that. That doesn't work. I would also advise you to not become involved with Gossamer. It's very complicated and very tangly, and her clothing is really confusing, and it might drive you crazy trying to figure out how it works. She has fantastic hair, though. She does have fantastic hair. That's a very good point. Now, Rusty calls ship on a payphone, which, by the way, this comic is set in the late 80s. Did we mention that back when payphones existed? So payphones, kids, were this thing you used to be able to put change into, and they would let you make phone calls. This was before everyone had cell phones. I assume that you already know this because you watch movies and stuff, but I feel like explaining ancient technology to the children is part of our responsibility. Jay and Miles explain VHS tapes. Oh, God, we should. That would be great. We can do that when we get to the Generation X TV show. Oh, man, that pilot was... I'm so excited about that. It it was certainly a thing. (laughs) There's a lot going on. (laughs) Yes. But anyway, Rusty calls a ship, X-Factor's big sentient ship that used to be Apocalypses, on a payphone to pick them up. And of course, he mentions that there are quite a few of them, and we quote... Ten babies, four kids, eight teenagers, and two alien life forms. I love it. I mean, working the exterminators in with the new mutants, like, it gets this sort of weird, wacky comedy vibe very briefly that I actually really enjoy. So speaking of those alien life forms, Ship, who has been around the block a few times, recognizes the the two alien life forms who come in and is immediately and understandably horrified. But before we talk about that, I did want to point out that Ship, drawn by Brett Blevins, is actually awesome. Like, Ship looks really good when Simonson draws it, of course, because Simonson does machines and weird technology really well. But Blevins just has this amazing sense of scale. Like, this thing looks like it's multiple city blocks, which when you think about it, it probably should be. Like, the vastness is just awesome. As are all the gadgets, it looks sort of like this wonderland of almost Seussian nightmare technology. Kind of like his version of Inferno, but, you know, robot My desire to recontextualize the verb ship in context of the character ship is definitely a thing, you know. I ship it, as in I occupy it and free it from unwilling servitude to, uh, you know, its former despotic master. 
and allow it to continue to hang out around Manhattan with me. Well, who would you ship ship with, and where would you ship that ship? Meh? Uh, I don't know. What are the other sentient vehicles in the Marvel Universe? I mean, I suspect there are quite a few. I can't think of any right now, but I know there are like a bunch. I sort of assume that Warlock is the only one who'd really treat ship right, because Warlock assumes that everything is sentient. Oh, right. There was that time he tried to make friends with a helicopter and also the Blackbird. And also the refrigerator. Warlock is the best. Warlock is a really good kid. Oh, right. But speaking of Warlock, we were talking about ship and aliens. Because Warlock is a technarch, as you know. And the technarchy are a really dangerous alien race full of, you know, homicidal, murderous, angry robot dads and kids. And so ship is about to annihilate Warlock. And Warlock's like, no, dude, I'm okay. No, self-friendship, please. Self is no Vegas. Self is techno-organic, yes, and can self-shape change. But Self is also a mutant, for Self has no desire for power. Self wants only friends. And Warlock, as he says this, turns into Roger Rabbit. Like, speaking of this is totally the late 80s, exactly Roger Rabbit. Not even a subtle reference, but straight up. The second Roger Rabbit reference we've seen in a fairly short period of time, since if you'll recall, he came up in the Avengers Inferno tie-ins. Oh, that's true, because somebody had just gone to see the Roger Rabbit movie. Yeah, and Jarvis had a hot damn that Jessica Rabbit is quite something moment. (laughs) Well, indeed she is. And so Ship, because Ship is almost as much of a genre mimic as Havoc, manifests a big robot cartoon boot and kicks Roger Rabbit slash Warlock into itself, saying, okay, I'm sure you're okay. Ship also has some serious reservations about Gossamer. And that's, you know, legit. Because Ship points out, you know, holy crap, this alien race that Gossamer's part of is like the most dangerous in the galaxy and they can destroy entire solar systems and she can't be here. It's going to be terrible. And also, she's totally not a mutant. You can make a case for a warlock, but you cannot justify letting her on. What the hell even? Gonna trap her in a glass tube and then shoot her into space or something. And so there's a big fight as the new mutants attempt to save her from the aforementioned glass tube. But I'm really bugged by this because once again, we see a contradiction between the way Gossamer's race's lifeline, their timeline, was set up and the way they're being described. I like that you're talking about this like it's some big established thing, not just something that got mentioned offhand in one issue and now is being mentioned offhand in a slightly different way. Look, when you have a character who only ever shows up for like half a dozen issues ever, these details are important. And I always thought it was a cool thing that the only reason Gossamer's family turned into those evil monsters and started destroying stuff was that Spider, you know, forced them to go through their evolution more quickly so he could exploit the weird silk stuff they made in their cocoons. That, like, if they'd been allowed to mature at their own pace, they would turn into these creatures of glorious wisdom and infinite peace. And that was totally forgotten in that storyline, like, you know, a number of pages later, and once again here. And it's a shame, because that was always a cool concept, that if you could get through your weird, like, pheromony adolescence, you would turn into, like, a big, you know, mystic thing. Well, Gossamer is not going to get a chance, at least here, to turn into a big mystic thing. Because Danny is getting death visions again, and Gossamer decides that she needs to do the right thing. She tells the New Mutants, I, like Ilyana, am what I was born to be. I saw the danger that Ilyana caused this world and saw her overcome her destiny to benefit from it. I have learned from her, from you all. I, too, want to be part of the constructive force of the universe. And so Ship mellows out a little, you know, partially at the requests of these mutants that Ship does know and trust, and says, all right, look, There's a planet of these mystical aliens who have been known to help members of your species, you know, master their evil powers and not turn into big, horrible monsters. So how about I tell you where that is and I make you a spaceship and you can go there and everything will be okay and you can become, you know, like a contributing member of cosmic society. 
And then he builds her a spaceship and launches her off and definitely doesn't set it to blow up in the atmosphere. Probably, maybe. I assume Ship actually does. I assume Ship has just straight up murdered Gossamer at this point because she's never going to come back. You know, I always kind of wondered that because, yeah, Ship exceeds to the demands like really quickly. And I can just see Ship going like, oh, don't worry, it'll totally be fine and detonate right outside the atmosphere. And I assure you she's fine and she probably just got really busy and that's why she never came back. Which is depressing because I really would love to see a happy ending for this character. Like, she really got the shafts narratively and that's unfortunate because she's not a bad person. She tries. It's okay, Miles. She's at a distant planet where she gets to run and play with all of the other enlightened members of her species. Oh, she's on a big cosmic farm where she can be happy? That's right. Oh, well, anyway, uh, you are correct. Gossamer is one of the few characters that genuinely doesn't ever come back, as far as I know, and as at least as far as Dr. Internet knows. She's also more hanging out with Dr. Neutron. Right, yeah, another character I wish we got to see again. Maybe they're just playing chess with, like, little action figures of all their buds. That's really creepy, but I also now really want a chess set that's all our friends. <laughs> that would be kind of awesome, actually. Many How... of them would make good cartoons. Right? Little totally. cartoon representations. And so, that's Gossamer. I mean, all the characters, you know, bid her farewell. The boy's still fighting over her. The new mutants, meanwhile, decide that they need to head out too, not to space or to a quick death in the atmosphere or anything like that. They are headed off to make a clean break with Magneto. Because during Inferno, they saw Magneto, the headmaster of the Xavier School, for the past many, many issues, and somebody who they've been trusting less and less as he's gotten closer to the Hellfire Club and has been, you know, a big mean jerk that wouldn't let them charge suicidally into battle all the time. They saw him and the rest of the inner circle of the Hellfire Club preparing to make a deal with the demon Nastier, like one of the big bads of Inferno. Is like Darth Vader and Star Wars self-friends, Headmaster Magneto turns to Dark Side of Force. And so they head over to the Xavier School to meet him. And, shock of shocks, there isn't an Xavier school anymore. There's just a bunch of rubble, which, you know, happens every once in a while. Take a drink or something. I mean, no, you shouldn't drink every time the Xavier school gets destroyed. No one's liver can take that. You can just, like, pour one out for the Xavier school. Yeah. Don't worry, it'll be back. Pour out a school or something. Now, speaking of Magneto, he is off, in fact, at the Hellfire Club in New York, angrily washing his hands next to Sebastian Shaw. So this introduces aspects of like men's bathroom etiquette that I had not been familiar with. Like at what point do you actually whip off your shirt in the course of a showdown or do you just do that as soon as you get in? Yeah, because neither of them are wearing shirts. Maybe they were training. I mean, Sebastian Shaw really doesn't wear a shirt oh, very fuck often. No, anyway. I assume they were just wandering around topless. It's the Hellfire Club. I mean, they are both pretty cut. Like if I was built like that, I'd probably wear a shirt a lot less. And they're totally both glaring at each other, which sort of brings up this whole other set of questions like with the bathroom etiquette thing. Like imagine wandering into like Marvel Universe bathrooms and and having to deal with the awkward urinal conversations only with, like, supervillains. Oh, man. Yeah, I, I don't like that plan. Uh, I'm, I'm what, thinking... Which supervillain would be the worst to pee next to? Oh, Arcade, hands down. You've clearly given this some thought. I don't want to pee next to Arcade. Nobody wants to pee next to Arcade. I don't even think Arcade wants to pee next to Arcade. Wait, there's that Chambers guy that works for him. Does he, like, try to time his bathroom break so that Arcade is, like, somewhere else at the time? Oh, yeah, but I assume that at least within Murder World, Arcade just, like, literally broadcasts a play-by-play. He probably does, yeah. In that sort of carny voice of his! We got really deep into this arcade peeing thing. I'm not sure this is something we can really come back from. Should we just end the episode here? <laughs> Let's just end the whole show. But I will say, listeners, if you want to talk about whatever the hell you feel like or comes to mind, you too can start your own podcast. It's totally worthwhile. We are professionals. We sort of are. So, anyway, what's going on here with the angry hand-washing in the Hellfire Club men's room is that Shaw is really angry at Magneto, saying that his failure to control magic, given what happened with Inferno, 
is what caused things going horribly. Also, and, he never flushes. But yeah, and that might hurt the Hellfire Club's financial holdings. The, the magic thing, not the flushing thing. That too, though. Magneto, meanwhile, rebuts. The world's security is threatened, and your narrow concern is for our economic interests. You are angered not at the damage to this city, but only that the Hellfire Club didn't know in time to profit from it. Spare me your hypocrisy. You care nothing for this city. Your constituency is mutant kind, and the number of mutants that you represent has dwindled. And words quickly turn to pugilism. This is an eventful men's room. Right? Um, well, it's the Hellfire Club. Where Shaw is saying that Magneto is foolish for putting his ideology above control. Magneto is saying that power is needed to protect mutants, and that's the reason you should have power. Actually, wait, you know what? The Hellfire Club bathrooms are officially a neutral space. I know this because this is addressed explicitly in Assault on Weapon Plus. Oh, right. Like Sabretooth's yeah, in the Yeah, Sabretooth and there. Wolverine peeing next to each other. And like they have an awkward conversation and then go their separate ways. I hadn't thought about that scene in ages, but you're totally right. I just reread it. So this is certainly some strange continuity we're getting into. A lot happens in the Hellfire Club bathrooms. God, I'll bet it does. Yeesh. Afterwards, Magneto meets up with his counterpart with the White Queen. She thinks that Shaw will think that Magneto should be out of the club since he has no more ties to the New Mutants or the Xavier School and so no more power beyond, you know, his own actual superpowers. Magneto disagrees. Magneto feels like it's time for things to happen in another direction. The time for subtlety is passing. Now is the time for a change. Sequins! Oh man, Hellfire Club Craft Night's gonna get so good. Oh man, I like the idea that the only change is just that the Hellfire Club gets super glam. Mr. Sinister shows up and joins. It'll be great. Yeah. Was he ever in the Hellfire Club? Uh, I don't think so. That seems weird to me. Yeah, he's got that Victorian thing totally yeah. down. Or is it Elizabethan? Whichever. Neither? Eh, you know. Some lady I mean, whose name inspired an era. The Hellfire Club is aggressively anachronistic anyway, so he'd fit right in. And before there can be any more exciting men's room activity, boy, that's a sentence. We're just going deeper and deeper here. <laughs> Into the men's room. Celine appears and says, hey, Magneto. There's a thing at the Xavier School you should probably check out. And what there is turns out to be John Byrne guest penciling an issue of the New Mutants. Right, so we are on number 75 here, which you would think based on the issue number should be milestoney, and it actually kind of is. Also, and again, it's penciled by John Byrne, and I feel like we should talk about this because it's weird. It's really weird. It is really weird. I mean, John Byrne is remembered as one of the iconic best pencilers of X-Men ever. I mean, he did some of the most important storylines, and they were awesome. And he's such a bad fit for New Mutants. See, that's the thing. It's not that he's a bad artist, but X-Men is a superhero book, and New Mutants, as much as it's got superheroics in it, really isn't. It's a book about a bunch of teenagers running around having feelings, and he's not nearly as good at drawing that as he is, you know, traditional superhero stuff. Right. He's also not really that great at drawing more than one woman? You know, that can be a problem. It's more true. than one guy. Like, Byrne is incredibly good at iconic, heroic people in costume scenes. He's a really fantastic comics artist. He's a very, very good action illustrator. He is not great with teenagers. He is really, really not. And he's especially not great with teenagers who need to have a lot of variation and nuance. So anyway, speaking of those teenagers, like we said, they just got to the Xavier School, or what was left of it. The first thing they find as they're marveling at the wreckage is Sabretooth. Yeah, Danny, using her Valkyrie death sense powers, senses a little bit of death glow from under some rubble. They pick it up and free good old orange-wearing, furry, long-fingernail Sabretooth himself. Wait, so she senses that he's alive by sensing that he's about to die? Uh, yeah, pretty much. Fortunately for them, this is crappy knockoff clone Sabretooth, so they are able to dispatch him conveniently. 
And by dispatch, you mean accidentally kill, because he's so close to death's door that when Cannonball blasts him once, that's it. Whoops. Now, what's kind of weird is that Danny, while she did sense the death glow for Sabretooth earlier, doesn't sense death coming for him, which usually she does, and has in fact at least once tried to fight off death. That's because God doesn't care about clones. I mean, kind of. Like, the thing is, we never really got follow-up from the plotline where the Marauder version of Sabretooth is actually not even close to the real you know, super badass version of Sabretooth that's been such a threat to Wolverine. And that's unfortunate because Claremont had some really cool ideas in that direction. Actually, I'm going to say it's more because Danny's death vision is just wildly and ridiculously inconsistent by this point. Well, it especially is canonically right now because it's been misbehaving more and more within the plot. Maybe he's just unconscious and they're really bad at sensing signs of life. He's just saying, I'm fine. I'm fine. Guys, let's have a conversation. Yeah, they're yeah just it's very Monty off. Python. <laughs> I'm not dead. Anyway, just as the New Mutants are about to, well, do whatever they would have done next. Bury Sabretooth against his protests in a shallow grave. (laughs) Stop shuffling dirt all over me. It's getting in my mouth. Oh, I hate this. Oh, there's a worm. Yeah, the inner circle appears because Selene, of course, told Magneto he needed to check out what was here. And now everybody's hanging out in the wreckage. Party at the Xavier School. Sunspot being Sunspot. Of course, before even saying hello, Chuck's like, you know, the nearest big piece of machinery at Magneto being furious at him for, well, everything. Magneto, meanwhile, is about as baffled by the new mutants as they are by the state of the school because, for instance, there are fewer of them. And Ilyana is six years old, which was definitely not the case when last he saw her. And as the new mutants attack, he effortlessly imprisons them in a big ball of metal because he's, you know, Magneto, and he's really good at, well, a lot of things. Neato! Yes, he's Neato. Neato Magneto. This is when he finds out what's going on, as the new mutants are just yelling at him about how he wasn't there to help. How You're not my is... real dad! I mean, it's true, he's not any of the real dads. Or apparently Quicksilver or the Scarlet Witches, according to that recent stupid retcon. That varies. Uh, well, at the moment. I mean, he's their real dad sometimes. He has a lot of on-again, off-again children. Now, Sebastian Shaw, who you may recall from a couple of minutes ago, it was pissed at Magneto for losing control of magic, is now even more pissed because not only is magic completely powerless and de-aged, but the new mutants have clearly turned completely against Magneto, and with that being the case and the X-Men dead, you know, what good is the guy? Although they are now all enclosed conveniently in a crunchy candy shell. It's true, it's true. You could take a big bite and you'd get some crunchy candy and you'd get some new mutant. Well, you could just carry them around or whatever or set them up as statuary. The point is they are now conveniently enclosed, at least. And so Shaw attacks, as he does. Now, Magneto, in addition to fighting back, rebuts that Shaw, like Xavier before him, can't see the larger picture on which Magneto then proceeds to enlighten him as well as the other assembled mutants. I knew that the struggle for world domination among the growing mutant factions would soon begin. Nonetheless, I hoped that I would have time to walk the path of peace, and that this path would lead our kind to cooperation and reconciliation. There was a human woman who fostered that hope in me. Shout out to Lee Forrester, the second most competent human being in the Marvel Universe. I gained control of the X-Men and New Mutants. My next step was to establish ties to the Hellfire Club. And thus I began to form my coalition, my power base upon which to build a foundation for control and peace among our kind. Do you think he's just making this up in retrospect to make it seem like he had a big plan? I mean, that's basically what Louise Simonson is doing because, well, we'll get to that in a moment. But yes, Magneto goes on to explain that then the mutant massacre happened, he realized this path of peace just was not going to work, that it was just going to be mutant faction against mutant faction, and really what was necessary was to make sure that the faction he was with was in control. Magneto drops a bombshell here. He claims that when the X-Men died in Dallas, he could have helped them, 
and he deliberately chose not to because they were saving humans and therefore incompatible with his vision. Man, this feels like such a massive forced retcon, and it makes me so mad. It's making Magneto sound a whole lot more like Apocalypse than he's sounded like before. Or alternately, like he has been smoking with the High Evolutionary. Well, they both do love Fuchsia. They do. Yeah, so there you go. I feel like getting stoned with Magneto would probably be one of the less chill experiences of your life. I bet he just gets really paranoid. But, okay, so here's an interesting historical fact about this, because, yeah, this is totally wildly out of character for Magneto, and it's wildly out of character for him in what should be a really climactic, important, influential issue. It's number 75. That's always a big deal whenever you hit a milestone like that. And he's foreshadowing a big clash between mutant factions, which we're never actually going to see realized, but for which there was at least originally an actual plan. Yeah, so this was the Mutant Wars, and if you go back, you can see the Mutant Wars advertised in Marvel Age, which was sort of the Marvel news magazine slash comic at the time, all over various solicitations, like they even had specific issue numbers. The Mutant Wars was going to be a storyline, the crossover between X-Men, New Mutants, X-Factor, and Excalibur, where the aforementioned mutant factions that Magneto was talking about were all going to, you know, go to war, essentially. It was going to be super team against super team against super team against super team. And this was going to be the big, you know, turning point of everything. And actually, I kind of want to read some of the uh, solicitation for Marvel Age Preview number one here. The Hellfire Club, Apocalypse's Forces, Sebastian Shaw's renegade faction of the Hellfire Club, the reformed X-Men, X-Factor, the Marauders, the New Mutants, led by their mysterious new leader, Cable, Legion, controlled by Farouk the Shadow King, in turn controlling Moira McTaggart. That's a lot going on. Once begun, the mutant wars will continue to affect the lives of every mutant in the Marvel Universe for years to come. It will be the most important event in the mutant milieu since the death of Phoenix. Now, the mutant wars never happened. What we got instead around the time it was solicited for was Extinction Agenda. And, you know, Extinction Agenda is a fine story. It's all right. I mean, it's no Inferno or Fall of the Mutants or Mutant Massacre, but it's all right. But the Mutant Wars? Now, I'm not sure if this would have been a good story. Like, the setup right here makes it sound, like you said, really forced. But it's a little sad that there is so much intent from Claremont and Simonson and presumably the whole editorial department. And we got nothing. None of this materialized. Which means this big scene for Magneto, this big heel turn that defined his character for years to come, was kind of for nothing. Yeah, this is the continuity equivalent of premature ejaculation. <laughs> That's one of my favorite things you've ever said. Thank you. <laughs> so, mutant wars aside, Magneto, of course, does defeat Shaw because he's freaking Magneto. And, you know, he's good at things when there's lots of metal around, which there is. Although Sebastian Shaw does have this Doctor Who-esque polarity reversing device, which makes me really happy, but it doesn't help. Magneto, good at things when there's lots of metal around. <laughs> That's on his business card. It's very awkward. He really should have hired someone to, to punch that up a little. I want that on my business cards. It <laughs> would be memorable. It would. Possibly, I mean, not inaccurate, but maybe that's not your top selling point. I mean, the things I'm good at have very little to do with the metal around, but some of them are things done in proximity to metal. <laughs> well, there you go. And so, yeah, Shaw is helpless. But Magneto's like, all right, so Shaw was going to kick me out of the Hellfire Club. That seems pretty clear to everybody. You know what? I vote. We kick him out. He doesn't need to be here. I mean, this dude was going to start the freaking Sentinel program. And remember how the Sentinel program is all about killing mutants that we all are? Yeah, that's not cool. Magneto and Emma obviously are on the same side here. The wild card, the deciding vote, is going to be Celine. And Celine concludes that, you know, with Magneto in charge, she'll be able to pursue her interests in Nova Roma. So Shaw is out, and Magneto ascends to become the Grey King and moves over to Susan Cooper novels instead of X books. 
<laughs> I do actually love when Celine does finally decide Shaw's not going to be a member of the Hellfire Club anymore. And she does this like holding her thumb out sideways and then pointing it downward like she's overseeing a coliseum and saying someone should finish somebody. It's very Celine. Nobody gets killed, though. Spoiler. Uh, it's true. Shaw will be back again and again and again and again and again. Lurking around the bathrooms. But yeah, so Magneto's going to be the Great King because now he's the Black King and the White King together and uh, a Susan Cooper novel. Because for those who see the world in terms of black and white, good and evil, are destined for disappointment and destruction. Man, Magneto is so good when he actually gets nuance. And it's really ironic to see him, you know, becoming the great king, taking that particular stance here where he's making such a ridiculous and reductive heel turn in general. It's true. But at the same time, I do really love this very pointed comment he makes about not seeing the world in black and white, because that's clearly directed at the New Mutants who just see him as a villain. And what he sees himself as doing is making necessary compromise, as making deals with the devil if that's what it takes for mutant survival. And honestly... That right there, as much as the Mutant Wars things is out of character, that right there is totally in character. And in fact, it is at this point that the New Mutants speak up and tell him that they're not going to be joining him. That if he chooses to walk this road, he will be walking it alone. And I love it because they're still trapped in this metal sphere, of course. And the pacing of this scene visually is so cool. They're being all defiant, and then we just see Magneto in the bottom right corner of the page in the last panel, holding out his hand menacingly, pulsing with magnetic energy, and saying... If that is the way you feel... At which point there's a page turn. Then you are free to go. It's such a good, like, build-up of tension, and then there's just nothing. Because this is Magneto, and the fact is, he's not going to imprison these kids against their will. But he's not going to let them go without a little more declamation. You are young. I ask only that you remember what you have learned here. You have been so dazzled by Xavier's dream of goodness and peace that you fail to see the world as it lies before you. But as the decade progresses, as the wars begin, you will learn that I am right. Those who fail to seize power, and quickly, will be lost. In time, some of you will return to join me freely in my conquest. Know now that you will be freely welcome. The rest of you will become X-Force and get rad neon costumes that look like they should have attached rollerblades. But I really do like that Magneto's last act as, you know, anything resembling a member of the good guy teams is to say, hey, you have free will. I have my philosophy. You have yours. I think I'm right and I think you're going to join me, but you need to do what you need to do. That's a really, I'm not going to say a sweet gesture, but that goodness that we see in Magneto, the reason he's not ever just a straight up villain, that's on display in full force here. And I like that. Do you think he gives that kind of speech every time they make a decision that he disagrees with? I think probably so. I think he's doing it to the inner circle, and eventually Celine and Emma Frost are just like, oh, this guy again, geez, blah, blah, blah. You are young. I ask only that you remember what you have learned here. You have been so dazzled by fluorescent lights that you have yet to recognize the true supremacy of LEDs, their great potential on Earth and in the cosmos. <laughs> I only hope that someday, when your batteries run low, you will come to understand what you have walked away from here, Celine. <laughs> now go ahead and finish the light bulb order. Yeah, this is it for Magneto. He's been a heroic-ish character for a long, long time, and no more. He's fully in gray space, and it won't be too long before he's a straight-up villain again. Now, rumor has it this may be in part because John Byrne, you know, the artist of this issue, wanted to use Magneto as a villain in the upcoming Acts of Vengeance crossover, where villains and heroes who don't normally fight each other fight each other. Don't know if that's accurate or not. 
So Claremont offered a different take, which is that Magneto was basically pushing the New Mutants away, setting himself up as a villain to give them something to rally against, basically doing the equivalent of what Batman does at the end of The Dark Knight or, I don't know, Arya chasing her wolf away and being like, no, you can't be here anymore. I don't love you anymore. And that's interesting because Chris Claremont and Louise Simonson had been working together so closely to guide the X-Universe into what they wanted it to be, you know, in the face of sometimes editorial mandate. At the beginning, of course, that was to change some of the plot points Bob Layton had put into effect at the beginning of X-Factor. And I think this is really the first time we see them just straight up disagreeing on a point and contradicting each other in each of their writing. But that's less important than what comes next, because do you know what time it is, Miles? What time is it, Jay? It's Namor time! The dejected and newly rejected New Mutants decide that the only thing they can possibly do at this point is dramatically make their sad way to a payphone and call their parents so they can head home. This plan has some problems, namely, for instance, that one of them has parents who are in space and actively attempting to kill him, others of them are orphans, have variously evil guardians, and so forth. I mean, Sam Guthrie's got a rad family. He'd be kind of bored if he went back to Kentucky, but, you know, they're real nice. The Guthries would probably just adopt all of the New Mutants anyway. Oh, man, that would be kind of wonderful. Sam did say that uh, Rain was his honorary little sister that one time. I want to see the timeline where everyone just goes and lives with the Guthries and they take over the Xavier school. And their lives are just awesome because Ma Guthrie is the best. And everything is really wholesome and she definitely threatens Sentinels with a shotgun and it works. (laughs) I love her so much. Now, because they decide that they can't really go home again... And they're confronted to actually at the payphone by an angry woman who thinks they're a bunch of monsters kidnapping a child, this poor, innocent Ileana Rasputin, since now she just looks like a normal six-year-old and shows no apparent evidence of being about to grow up to be a demon sorceress, which she won't. She'll die before she can do that. But anyway. Well, she will later. A different version of her. It's complicated. A different version. This one dies. Yes. But before she can do that, that'll happen years from now in the comics. Because now the New Mutants decide they're going to head back to ship, where they can at least take a break and hang out with their friends. Meanwhile at ship, the Exterminators are on a diving expedition. They have decided they should do something educational, and so ship has outfitted them with diving gear and sent them to go explore the ocean depths. And I really love their diving gear here that ship makes as well, because it's like those big bubble helmets that I'm pretty sure don't actually work in the water or in space ever in real life. Yeah, they do. They can. They can? Okay, well, I'm happy to hear that. But regardless, I'm also happy that Boom Boom, like, she's still got her hair bow and her sunglasses on under this big bubble helmet. Well, and they're right outside of Manhattan. I assume they're just looking for dead gangsters at this point. It's possible, or a whole lot of trash, probably. Yeah, could be both. But what they actually find are octopi and sharks. Yeah, because, of course, anytime you go into the water in the Marvel Universe, this happens. Everything is dangerous everywhere. Are there octopi that far north? I think of them as more of a tropical I mean, sea life. they're drawn to mutants, you know? It's like sharks are drawn to blood. They're also drawn to mutants. That actually does make sense based on prior precedent. Well, there you go. Yeah, I, I can just imagine Cyclops coming back and they tell him about their day and he's like, oh yeah, this one time I was on my honeymoon and we totally got attacked by like way more sea life than you would expect for a brief trip like that. I mean, really, like, every time he's been in a boat. That did lead to one of my favorite X-Men covers, the one where he's got, like, the uh, octopus tentacle around his neck, and he's drowning, and it's super dramatic looking. It also meant that I got to make a lot of Spalding Gray references, for which I remember it fondly. God, that episode was forever ago. Spalding Gray references are forever miles. But meanwhile, the New Mutants also find a big, weird shell. It's sort of striated. It doesn't really match any sea creature we've seen before. What it mostly looks like is, like, renaissance illustrations of a cornucopia shell but we've seen it before we the canny reader recognize it because we saw dr doom holding it many years ago sometime in the 60s and yelling toot at the top of his lungs against the wishes of namor i mean i always thought he just blew it and the shell made a toot sound but it's so much funnier if he just yells toot into it in his sort of robot voice toot 
Yeah, and Boom Boom taking a key from the Doctor Doom school of approaching weird, mysterious, gigantic horns with possible mystic connections to Atlantis that you've never encountered before, decides, fuck it, I'm just going to blow the thing and see what happens. And what happens is that a giant octopus attacks and then Namor shows up to yell at them. Yeah, there's this awesome two-page spread of this huge, huge octopus, like, pulling ship. You remember the multi-city block size ship down under the water right outside of Manhattan? It's pretty awesome, actually. It's a very large octopus. And yeah, Namor shows up and says, Did you not know that Prince Namor, the Submariner, would hear the blast from this stolen horn? Is he just like always listening to everybody? Yes, he is. Oh man, uh... Namor knows what you said the other day, and he does not appreciate it. That's really sad and intimidating. As well it should be. Also, you have a lovely singing voice in the shower. Huh, thanks, Namor. The presence of water amplifies it and brings it to my ears. Oh. I enjoy your rendition of Rainbow in the Dark in particular. It's a really good song. It speaks to the passions of the King of Abslantis. Whoa, Namor likes Dio. I feel great about that. Canon. Uh, so, <laughs> anyway, yeah, so they realize what's going on because, you know, their home, their friend, ship has been pulled under the water and there's this giant goddamn octopus monster that's probably, after it finishes eating ship, gonna, like, kill, you know, New York. All of it. So they head back into the water. Danny conjures up some diving equipment using her mutation, which looks wildly inadequate but seems to work, and they head down. There is a very Silver Age action scene where they all hit the octopus and talk about it. Yeah, there's a lot of, like, them yelling what they're doing while they're doing it, which, yeah, I agree, it's very Silver Age. It makes this issue feel a little, I don't know, awkward? I assume that they're simply influenced by the presence of Namor, who understands the importance of action declamation, and I assume, although we don't see him do it, is yelling, IMPERIOUS REX in every single panel break. That actually seems kind of reasonable. IMPERIOUS REX! I would yell that all the time if I was Namor. I will be filling in this blank by yelling Imperious Rex randomly throughout the rest of the episode. Oh, thanks for being a pal, Jay. Imperious Rex! But in the fight, nothing is working because this giant freaking octopus is damn near invincible being a giant freaking octopus. Fortunately for them, Richter's father, like my mother, I should add, understands the importance of bonding with your child by explaining chemical explosives. And so Richter knows a good deal about dynamite. Yes. And so they decide, all right, here's what's going to happen. We're going to get inside the submarine made of Warlock. We're going to get closer to this and we're going to get that dynamite closer to this beast because Namor points out that's what killed the last one back in Fantastic Four number four. Well, and they need to make the submarine out of Warlock because the diving equipment is the result of Danny's power that can only maintain one thing at a time. And once their greatest wish becomes dynamite, they will no longer be able to have oxygen tanks. I'm trying to imagine people whose greatest wish is more than momentarily dynamite. I think they're probably a little terrifying. Or perhaps they work in demolitions. Oh, well, that could be it as well. Terrifying or professional. It might be a very practical wish. And as they're getting closer to the octopus, it's continuing to fight them and in fact manages to breach the hull of the warlock sub, freaking the hell out of Ilyana, who's just a normal little girl at this point. To which Namor responds, Remain calm, child. It is only the ocean. I mean, this sort of thing happens all the time in the ocean. I guess it probably does if you're Namor. I mean, seriously. Like, land people are ridiculously fragile. Imperious Rex! 
so, you know, a combination of skids, cannonball, and Richter do manage to get the dynamite into the mouth of the octopus and blow it up and it's dead and everything's fine. And then they get back to ship, the newly desubmerged ship, just in time for X-Factor to return. And Namor at this point flies off because he is uninterested in this iteration of X-Factor as there are no members who he is likely to be able to seduce in the near future and heads off to hook up with Emma Frost somewhere else or run around having amazing abs and yelling. Just one more time. Okay. Imperious Rex! And I do love that this entire time, Namor's like, I guess I shouldn't have left my horn lying around since Fantastic Four number four, but you know what? Whatever. Oh, that's the best part. He's been bugging them for disturbing this Atlantean artifact that was safely under the sea. And at the end of the issue, he just happens to drop that, yeah, I totally misplaced it and had no idea what it is, but you still shouldn't have done that. <laughs> yup, because Namor gives no fucks. Yes! And Imperious so- Rex! <laughs> And so he heads off, and the exterminators are like, okay, hey, X-Factor, so these are our friends. We accidentally summoned a big octopus, but they need a place to live. Would you mind if they stayed here anyway, and we promise we won't summon any more octopi? X-Factor's like, yeah, you know what? This is really just Tuesday here. And in fact, Cyclops points out that X-Factor had been they've been planning to invite the new mutants to live on ship anyway. So, hey, works out for everybody. Or at least everyone in the comics. You, on the other hand, dear listeners, have questions. An anonymous listener asks on Tumblr, Why do the X-Factor kids mostly have the same powers as the Brotherhood of Mutants? Rusty and Pyro, Richter and Avalanche, Skids and Eunice the Untouchable are all obvious. Also arguably Leech and Rogue and Artie and Mastermind. Only Boom Boom is really not a copy of a Brotherhood member. So, I mean, I don't have any kind of canonical official answer because I don't think that these parallels were deliberate. But I will say that for non-focal characters, and, you know, also villains or characters that are rescued by the main characters, say, and are not as central, sometimes it's simplest just to assign them a straightforward, easy-to-understand power. So fire, force fields, and earthquakes, for instance, all very physical, very easy to recognize visually. Power dampening slash power theft and psychic holograms slash illusions, they're not quite as straightforward or parallel, but they're still easy to explain. I mean, certainly more so than, say, Ilyana's power to teleport to not-quite-hell and then somewhere else. Or Banshees scream that both can blast and enable flight. Um, of course, some main characters themselves have straightforward powers, like, say, Cyclops and Storm. But still, I think the ratio is more in favor of what I'm describing, of secondary characters having simpler powers and main characters having powers that at least over time evolve into being much more complex. An anonymous listener also asks on Tumblr, With the recent addition of Cerebra to the team, and you guys discussing Nimrod, I've been thinking about Sentinels being used for heroic purposes. See Tom Skylark and Rover, Karima Shapandar, Sentinel Squad 1, and Justin Seyfert, or as a sometimes metaphor for gun control. I wanted to know what you thought of machines made specifically to hunt mutants being used for good. I know the mutant metaphor isn't perfect, but would the idea of heroic sentinels be a problem to most mutants? So I want to briefly address the gun control metaphor because I think it's an interesting one, and I think it's one that largely fails in those particular cases because guns, for the most part, aren't sentient while the characters in question are. Like that's, Megatron that's is sentient. He's a, a really gun. key distinction. That is an excellent point. So except Megatron, you're totally except right. Except Megatron. Going on to the main question, this is actually something that Cyclops addresses very directly with regards to the newly autonomous danger in Astonishing X-Men. And his point is that if mutants espouse the idea that it's wrong to judge and dismiss mutants based on their natures and factors beyond their control, it's extremely hypocritical of mutants to then not extend the same courtesy to other sentients. You know, that uh, kind of makes sense, and yay for Cyclops for being a rational, compassionate dude. And I'm actually going to stick those panels in the S mentioned because they are my single favorite Cyclops telling off Charles Xavier scene ever. Oh, even better than at the end of Deadly Genesis? Yeah, because it's not only Cyclops pointing out what a dick Xavier is, it's Cyclops making a really important and salient point. 
Excellent. Go Scott Summers. We love you most of the time. Cyclops was right, but inconsistently enough written that you can't really generalize. <laughs> that, that would be too long for a t-shirt, I think. I'll come up with something out of it. Now, we are an entirely listener-supported podcast, and some of those tiers of support come with acknowledgement on the podcast from a range of fictional characters. I believe that this time, in honor of her final appearance in the comics and possible death in the atmosphere, I am turning things over to Gossamer. Oh, Philo. Dear sweet Philo, I don't know what to do. You say you love me, as does Sam, as does Bobby, but you can't help it any more than I can. Maybe this planet ship assures me is totally real, and not just an excuse to blow me up in secret will help. Nicole Wing, how do you do it? You're sexy but not evil. I I didn't even know that was a thing. Jay and Miles explain the X-Men is recorded in Portland, Oregon, and produced by Kyle Yount, host of the Godzilla podcast, Kaiju Cast. New episodes of our show come out every Sunday on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for all kinds of additional content, visual companions to every episode, along with interviews, fan art, recaps, reviews, and more. Our show is totally listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and stay ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, we return to ship. As Nanny gets a backstory and X-Factor becomes super babysitters. Also, there will be trolls. Trolls.